Good morning, church. My name is Corey. My twin brother, Cody, the guy that dresses like a bum, is not here. Some of you may be taken by my outfit. I am also. I, uh, I only do this for weddings and funerals. And in some ways, today is like that. Not that we're going to have someone die, and that's, this not, that's not the goal, or we're going to see a holy matrimony happen. But in many ways, today's a special day for us as a church. So I dressed up for this occasion, and uh, I can't wait. In fact, I'm taking it off. That's it. That was enough of that. Oh, man, what is that outfit? Okay, I'll leave the tie on for now. But in many ways, today is that kind of a day. Today is, in some ways, a funeral because in many ways we have to leave. We have to pack up and we have to say goodbye to this building. But you know what? This is just a building. All buildings crumble and fall. In fact, when we were doing the last song, when uh, Tony hit the drums, I don't know if that's what it was, but there's over there, some of the paint is falling off and a piece kind of floated down next to me. Listen, all buildings crumble and fall. Well, it's because of sin. Even creation is groaning, waiting for that final redemption. Amen? So in some ways, I mourn today. I feel sad that we have to leave, but this is what God is calling us to do, and we're leaving. But in the same sense, we're excited because God is moving us. We're going somewhere else, and We'll set up our tent there for a short time or for a long time, and maybe God will call us to Gorst. That's where Pastor John says, no, 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 but we'll see. We'll just seek the Lord in his will. If you don't like following the Lord's will, then talk to Job. See about that. See about suffering. See about God's sovereignty. Talk to Jonah. See what it's like when you say, well, God says this, and I don't, okay. We follow his sovereign plan. We follow his way. And that's what we want to do. So today we are in sorrow and we rejoice. It's like for me dressing up, it's it's like a funeral and a wedding. And as you see behind me, we have communion today. In many ways, that's like a funeral and wedding together. Before I begin into the word today, I was thinking this week, you know, there's many words, there are many phrases, there's many quotes that have changed history. They've changed the the way people look at things. Just even in America, there's words that have changed the outcome of the history of world. Think of these words. I have a dream. I have a dream that that changed the history of our nation in many ways. Or think of these words, four score and seven years ago. Maybe that's as far as you remember those words. But those are words that have impacted, changed the history of our nation. Or we hold these truths to be what? Okay, at least some of you know that I'm... Hoping maybe some of the high schoolers, man, they may not, okay, what is, you know. Very, very important words for our nation. Great words to help change our nation. But sometimes there are words that have not really changed the history of the world for the better. Listen to these words. 
my patience is at an end. Who said that? (laughs) Your mother. Now we know, Meryl. Now we know. And that was every day. Oh, man. That's why we get along so well. Yes. Yes. Sadly, those were the words, 1938, that Hitler said. Those are words that changed the world. In response to those actions, we have these words. We will fight in the fields. We will fight in the streets. We will fight in the hills. We shall never surrender, Churchill. Words that have changed their attitude. Or these words. Why not? Let me know what those words were. Those might be familiar. Reagan told someone, tear this wall down. And who was it he was talking to? Gorbachev said, why not? The Berlin Wall was turned up. Or if some of you know church history, Martin Luther is being in front of the great council, being pushed and being the focus is on him, and here's his words. He's just saying, this is the way the church should be, this is the way it should be. And he says, here I stand. I can do no other. He was looking at death in the face. And his words changed the outcome of so many things. It's amazing how powerful some quotes, some few words can change things. And of all these, here's the greatest, I believe. Listen to these words. I mean, many words have changed the history of the world. Listen to these. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The greatest sermon ever given, the Sermon on the Mount. The words of Christ. I have in my library, which I'm still on packing boxes. I'm waiting for a couple more bookcases so I can finally finish it. And I have this set. It's called The Greatest Books of the Western World. This huge volumes that Encyclopedia Britannica put out and they had um, Van Doren and Adler, these two guys, got together and said, we're going to come up with the greatest writings of the Western world. In there are a lot of science. They're like, these are the greatest science writings of the Western world. These are some of the greatest political writings of the Western world. These are some of the greatest literary writings. They got Shakespeare and some, they got history. They got Aquinas, Augustine, all this stuff. But you know what? Today, we are going to look in Scripture at some of the greatest words given in history that have shaped the history of time. And we get to do that today. And we get to do that in Genesis. We get to start where it all begins. And you may think, why are we looking at the Old Testament? Why, why, why the Old Testament? Here God enters, and this is why I, I come to saying these are the greatest words. God enters into a covenant with Israel as a means of formalizing, saying these are how my promises are. I promise to you, and in that I give you my name and my promise, and I make a vow to you, and I will be your God. And these are the greatest words.
that have shaped the history of the world. He makes this promise to Abram, who becomes Abraham, an agreement with Israel. And why are we looking at this? So everyone turn to Genesis. Turn to the beginning of your Bible. Why are we looking at this? We'll, we'll look, let's just turn to Genesis 12. If you don't have a Bible, just put your hand up. Pastor John has a Bible for you. We've got some Bibles. Genesis chapter 12. Why are we looking at some of these things? And I've mentioned before, I'm not covering every aspect. I'm not covering every chapter. We're going to look through this, and we're going to look at the passages that kind of point our way to the cross. Why? Because, look at me, we need foundations. We need foundations. Two weeks ago, I was with some guys. We were out to lunch, and we were talking. He was, one guy was talking about he was remodeling his house. And they were adding addition on, and they were, I think they were digging in, in the ground. They were setting some kind of foundation around here. You don't have many basements. I come from a place where you have basements. How many of you have basements in your house? There's a few of you, okay. Some of them open up to the outside. And I'm from a place where you just dig deep down, and you just, it's nice in the summertime because it's cool there. But this guy was digging a foundation, and the contractor came out and was very particular. They weren't just getting the foundation walls. First, it was that foundation piece to put the wall on. He told the guys, he contracted a group of people to come out and lay it all out, and they measured it out, and they were off. Just a hair. The contractor came back, and the gentleman whose house was, he could see after it was poured, the people were talking, and they were nervous because, like, it's off just a bit. And when the contractor came back, he came back and said, we can't do this. If it's off a bit, if your foundation isn't truly there, we can't add on. It's not going to happen. So we as a church, we want to look at some of these foundational things. And this big foundation I want to take, we've been taking three weeks to do this, it's this. God in his greatness, in his awesomeness, has come, even in the midst of our sin and shame, has come and said, I want to make a promise to you. I want to enter into relationship with you. That's just unbelievable that God, the creator of all, in the beginning, God, creator of all, enters into relationship with us. Wow! That's not just good news that's amazing news anyone who can grasp that can understand that should stand up every day and just be like you are great you are mighty and let the world know that's the foundation we're looking at in genesis it's interesting in the old testament as i study the old testament i have piles of books that old testament scholars always want to do this. I, I, don't, I don't understand this. They don't do this in the New Testament, but they always want to do this in the Old Testament. They always want to say the one major theme is this in the Old Testament. And part of that, I think, is because they have already a theological grid, glasses that they look through, so they want to make sure it fits what they see things as. For, and I don't really have a problem with some of the, the conclusions they have, but it seems they always want to say it's this one thing and that's all it is. Many scholars say the Old Testament is all about promise. 
promise is the theme. And I see that. And we see that especially right here in these chapters we've been looking at. And it follows through. In fact, in the New Testament, it talks about the promise given beforehand, the promise spoken to our forefathers. So that makes sense. Another theme they talk about is this, covenant. The Old Testament is all about covenant. And I totally see that. That's what we see here. God makes this covenant with his people. Others say this, it's all about kingdom. The Old Testament is about kingdom, and then the New Testament is fulfillment of that kingdom. Here's another theme that people push, and I see this one, Revelation. God is all about revealing himself to a people who do not know him, or revealing himself in mighty ways to his own people so that he would be known. Well, I think that's truly a major theme in Scripture. As we carry on to Christmas, we will see that is one of the major themes, that God is all about being known to a people and making himself known. But I don't think it's just one. I even asked my father-in-law, which is good to do when you've got a brilliant man like that as a father-in-law, am I wrong thinking, why are all these different, they just want one. He's like, you know what, you're right. I mean, it isn't just one. It's a conglomeration. It's, it's many of those things in one. And I am excited to, in these next months, walk with you through Scripture as we see God showing himself to a people in fulfillment of these promises based upon the covenant he's made for his kingdom. I'm kind of combining them all together, but that's how it goes. So let me pray and we'll dig into Scripture. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you that we can come to church. We thank you that we can celebrate you. This is today not about dressing up. This is today not about just being together as community. Those are parts of it. This is not just today about gathering. Today is about you. And Lord, I pray that we would come to know you more as we see the beauty of of these great words that have shaped the history of time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 12. A couple weeks ago we looked at this and here the Lord calls Abram. Calls him and says, I will be here. I am God and I promise you And he gives some promises to him. He promises him land. He promises him descendants. And he promises that you'll be a blessing to all people. And the Lord deals with Abraham in the beginning of God's way of countering this sin that has happened in chapters 3 through 11. There's that bad part, the uh uh-oh, the act 2 sin. And in that, God comes in his grace and begins to counter sin. And he says, you will be a blessing. You will be blessed. And I promise to you these things. And Abram's like, okay. And as we saw last week, there's time. It doesn't just happen right away. Wouldn't that be great if you just, God, sometimes we think that God is just his vending machine. We put certain change in, push a button. I've prayed enough times. Great, this will happen. 
Again, God is all about developing our character more than preserving our comfort. Time, waiting, that pressure cooker is not the best thing. And some of you have been waiting a long time to see promises that you sense the Lord calling. You. Okay, Lord, where, why, what? And we wait. And we see that this is one of God's modes, his way of shaping his people. And here in chapter 12, we see God beginning this relationship. And we see also here that Abram has to obey Obedience is a way we show authentic faith. Because listen, if you don't have faith, where's your true love? If you don't have that faith and obedience together, where is it? It's not there. So we already see Abram moving in faith. Then turn to chapter 15. It's interesting that the promises in chapter 12 become the covenant in chapter 15. Here we have a great span of time. God affirms and reaffirms his will for his people, and he makes a covenant. And many times people, when we study the word of God, when we get to chapter 15, many times as as pastors we want to take time and just look at what was this covenant all about and especially if you take a look here in the middle of chapter 15 take a look at some of the verses here like verse 9 here God says and here's another command remember we've got these commands leave, go is chapter 12 here's the command in 15 Do not be afraid, the first part. And then we also hear, here's the command, bring me a heifer. That's the command. God calls out to bring these animals. And God then makes this covenant, this vow. Look at me a second. I'm not going to spend much time looking at the particulars of how and why all this, why did they separate the animals, why did they cut them in two, why did God walk through that? What was all that about? I'm not going to look at the what. I'm going to look at more the result. Why did God do those things? I can read you some of the old ancient manuscripts. All that was very common. That was the way they made covenants in the past. But I'm going to look at why did God do that? Why would God make a covenant, a vow, with this nomadic person? Why would he choose you? Why would he make a vow with you? Why would he do that? So chapter 15, we saw last week that Abraham, who is here called Abram, believes the Lord. And out of that belief, it's credited to him as righteousness. And please remember this. In the New Testament, how do you have faith? It's believing. How do you become right with God? It's through faith and belief, right? In the Old Testament, how do they become right with God? Through faith and obedience in his promise. It's through faith. It's not through works. That's not how you become right with God. Righteousness is never through the way it is done through the law. In fact, we'll see later on, especially in Romans, the law points out you can't do it. 
So it's great in the Old Testament we see that it's all about faith, faith, and that's how righteousness is. Chapter 15. But let's turn to chapter 17. Chapter 12, we looked at the promises of God. Chapter 15, we looked at the faith of man, a single man. And out of his faith, that's how righteousness was given to him. Chapter 17, I began with saying this, that there are many words that have changed the history of the world. Chapter 17 gives these words that have shaped the history of time. In fact, chapter 17 is kind of the, here's some musical terms, I'm learning musical terms here, the crescendo. It's, it's, it's the crescendo of it all. I, the reason I'm studying music right now is because there's something about Beethoven's music I like. I'm an 80s rocker. I mean, I just like the 80s music. If you saw pictures of me with a mullet, you'd freak out and you'd be like, wow, we need a new pastor, but it's, it's okay. And so it's weird that I'm drawn to Beethoven. I don't know why. Maybe because it's loud. I can picture some drums and guitars. I don't know what it is. But my favorite piece of Beethoven is the Ninth Symphony. It's really long. I've listened to it multiple times. I like to listen to it when I study, when I read, when I'm doing whatever. And my favorite part of that piece isn't the beginning. It's not right in the middle. It's the last choral section, the famous Oh, to joy. Ba, 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 ba. And the choral sings, the strings come in, it's just, oh, it's beautiful. It's the crescendo. And I've listened to that piece dozens of times. I got my little iPod and it tells how many times I've listened to it. I'm like, wow, isn't that a lot? It's like 27 minutes long, just that little section. It's the crescendo. It's just, it lifts you. This right here in the Old Testament we will see these words that just... Let's take a look at this. Chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old. So again, that's like 25 years from the first time the Lord said, hey, I promise you, 25 years just waiting, waiting, Lord, please, the promises, where are they? The Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. You know what's great about the Old Testament? I love this. We'll see this, that throughout Scripture, especially Genesis and Exodus, God slowly reveals himself more and more, especially in his names. Quickly take a look at 15. Chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Look at verse 2. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord. The Hebrew words there are Adonai. O master, O ruler of the world, Oh, sovereign Lord, you're in control. You're the master of the earth and sea and sky. That's kind of just that big God picture we're used to seeing. But look at 17. He doesn't use those words. The Lord, he is Adonai. He is the master. 
But look at how God begins to reveal himself in a more personal way with his name. I am God Almighty. God Almighty. Do any of you in your Bibles have like a little note next to that? Like a little letter maybe or a number? Yeah? What does it say below that? El Shaddai. Do you see that? Have you heard that name before? Have you heard the song before? El Shaddai, El Shaddai. Well, what, is, what does that mean? It's not that God has all these different names because he wants to be different things at different times because he's got some complex issues. Listen, God in his greatness begins to reveal himself more personal to his people. He is, I am El Shaddai. I am God. Here's some things I wrote down about that name. El Shaddai. He is all-sufficient, all-powerful. And here's what I wrote down. Listen to this. He is mighty and great enough to keep his promises. Imagine, 25 years. Let's say God said, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do something great for you. And you just were like, this was completely God. 25 years later, you're going, okay, I'm waiting. We know what that's like. We live in America. We have politicians that say stuff to us all the time. Oh, we will provide this for you. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Some of you have had families like I've had where our parents have promised certain things and they never happen. Or you think you have, supposed to have a good dad or a good mom and you're brought into a family like I was where my dad was not the best dad waiting for that promise. 25 years, and God says this, I am El Shaddai. I am mighty. I am powerful enough to fulfill that promise I gave to you. And that's the foundation we need to know, that he is all-sufficient. He is able, I wrote this down, he is mighty and great enough to keep his promises. So remember that, church. He is mighty and great enough to keep his promises. For us as a church, we have to meet in a school. We have to move. We have to tear down. We're going to be over here. Then we're going to be over there. Has God called us to be a church? Yes, he has. We trust his promises, not our design, right? He is mighty enough, great enough to keep his promises. And in this name also, I wrote this down. He is mighty and great enough to deal with any problem you have. Praise God. How many of you ever have problems in your life? I'm raising both hands. Any problem you have, and maybe any problem that you don't foresee, he is great enough. He is El Shaddai. He is great enough, mighty enough, sovereign enough, powerful enough to take care of your problems. Chapter 15, Abram's like, I don't even have any children. His eye was on circumstances, on his problems, right? God says, go outside, look at all the stars. You'll have more children. What? Listen, as a church, I want to help remind you that we are not to keep our eyes on the circumstances, on the problems, but on the God who controls every circumstance of my life. Amen? That's what his name is all about. And that's what God draws us to. He draws him to himself. 
He's mighty enough and great enough to keep his promises. He's mighty enough and great enough to deal with any problem you have. And he is able to do what he says. He's able to do what he says. So the first part of this, why this is so great, it's a deeper revelation. He reveals himself more and more. The second part is this. First, he reveals himself. Second, it's the reiteration of his promise. It's the aspect of do not forget. How many of you celebrate an anniversary if you're married? If you don't, you're in trouble, right? I've learned over and over that I need to really be on top of things. In fact, that's why inside my ring, it's engraved. So if I ever get to the age I forget, I can always go, oh, yep, that's the date. Okay, it's right in my ring. I won't forget. We are humans, and we are quick to forget. God knows that. So he reiterates again and again, don't forget, these are my promises. So we have here in chapter 17, him saying, here's my promises. I've said this. This will happen. 25 years have passed. Okay, don't forget. So secondly, we have chapter 17. It's important because he says, this is who I am. This is what I promised. And again, I said this. The hardest thing for us is this concept about promises is not believing the promise of God. Because most of you have gone to church your whole life. Some of you know who God is. You've walked with God longer than I've been alive. Is God going to keep his promises? Oh, uh, yeah. That's not the hard part. The hard part is waiting. And waiting. And waiting. But that develops character. That allows time for you to understand who he is and put you in your right place. Because you're not the one up. Oh, yeah. He reiterates this because we need to wait. And the third part is the covenant itself. Chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your number. God is sovereign. He keeps his promises. He's almighty. He reveals himself. He reiterates the promise. Listen to the promise. He begins to spell it out. And here is this phrase I want to just pause at and end with. Here are the words that have shaped the history of time. Let's look at verse 6. And honestly, if it was up to me, we could take 10 weeks just on this little section here. But we'll come back to some of this covenantal promises. But I want to look at this main phrase right here. Take a look at verse 6. I will make you very fruitful. He's 99 years old. His wife is 90. We're not having kids. Come on. God is faithful in his promises. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you who's the king of kings christ i love how we keep catching glimpses of christ in the old testament then look at verse seven i will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants and after you for the generations to come. And here's the phrase. In fact, if you underline in your Bible, if you make notes, 
circle this part. Soak this in. Because God just doesn't do this. Here's, here's how we think God. We think God is up here in this big, mighty throne. It looks like Gandalf. Here I am. I'm up here. I'm the God. I make these covenants with you. Here's my regulations. Follow them. Oh, good people. Pats us on the back. When we fail, when we sin, when we do things bad, lightning bolts come down. He's like, oh, I got those little ants. No. God in this covenantal part, he's, he's all about relationship. He's all about restoring the relationship. Chapters 3 through 11, just chaos, mess, sin, agony. Then 12 begins this restoration process. He begins, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make promises with you. Chapter 12, 15, 17, he reiterates again. He reveals himself closely. And then he just doesn't spell some words. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have a bunch of kids. Here you are. You're going to be Abraham. Oh, it's going to be great. I'm going to be from afar doing this. Look at these words in seven. It's just amazing. Again, start with verse seven. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants. I'm not just going to bless you, but I will be your God. And we're going to hear this phrase often come in scripture. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And here is the thing that just blows us away. God is the one who initiates us. It's not that we somehow awaken ourselves and go, I need God. I'm hungry for religion, so in the midst of my sin, in the midst of my shame, I'm going to start searching out world religions. Okay, that one doesn't work, that one doesn't work. Well, logically, this is the best one, and well, Christianity is going to be it. No, we were dead in sin, right? Dead, completely done. And God initiates and awakens us by his spirit so we can have life in him. And he says this. He doesn't just say, hey, come alive. Be mine and that's it. Kind of like the Bette Midler song that was out years ago. God is watching from a distance. It's not that. God says, here, I'm going to bless you and I will be your God. I'll make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a vow. A couple weeks ago I was in Tennessee doing that wedding. They made a public declaration before the people before me, before those standing up, affirming the wedding, that we will be one. And that's what God does in the covenant. He makes a vow to us saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. He enters into relationship. These are the words that just have shaped history. That God Almighty would do this. What's the purpose of the covenant? To rescue you. To be with you. Because he is God. That's the purpose of the covenant. So that we would walk in his word and come to know him. I wrote this down. The character of the covenant is a redemptive relationship with the result of knowing God and us glorifying him and that covenant reveals his character, his will, and his plan. And that's what we're going to look at until Christmas. What is his plan? What is his will? And what is his character 
in this covenant relationship? What does this all look like? In the Bible, the covenant is not just a doctrinal concept to be worked out in our theology around our different particular belief system, but it's a description of a living process that we walk and know God. And that's the way of the cross. It's all about relationships. To be your God, the God of your descendants. These are the words that have changed history. I mean, think about it. There's many things that change and shape us. There's many words that affect us. But the words that God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. What a privilege we have, especially on this side of the cross, to be a part of that. Because God began this plan of redeeming history in a person, which led to a nation, but his eye was always on the world. And that's the foundation we start off with. That God, in his greatness, sees the problem of sin, and how does he deal with it right away? He enters into relationship with you and I. And this is my prayer. This is my primary goal as a pastor, to know and get to know each of you individually and as a church, to push you on so you can realize that this God loves you wants to know you, wants to enter into relationship with you because he's all about grace. Because you're all about sin. (laughs) If it was up to you, you'd choose your own way. And most of you, especially me, would be dead in a couple days. But God is all about grace and love. And that's the God we worship. But here's the outcome. If I could boil down the Old Testament to just a little paragraph, it would be this. Listen to this. There is one God. He created us in his image. He made us good, but we sinned. We failed against his holy standard. And God, in his great love, entered into relationship with humanity. I will be your God, you will be my people. But listen, we'll see this in the next year as we go through the Old Testament. God does not change. We, the people in the Old Testament keep changing, they keep failing, they keep failing. I'm still your God, you're not my people, you're my people, you're not my people, you're not my people. It happens over and over again, you know, you're following these gods. And here's, when we see that in ourselves. I will be your God, you will be my people. They keep failing, they keep failing. We'll see this in the prophets, especially Jeremiah, pens it out great. I cannot change So I'm going to change you. I'm going to put a new heart in you. And there will be a new covenant. And that's what the New Testament is. Let's pray.